Welcome to the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast, your guide to help you manage life, money, and multiples. Each episode, host Paul Fenner, Tama Capital's president and founder, and the proud parent of four amazing children, including one set of triplets, will provide insights on successfully sustaining an active lifestyle, career, and family through comprehensive wealth management strategies, financial education, and lifestyle planning specific to parents raising twins, triplets, and more. Learn more, subscribe to the show, or connect with Paul at TamaCapital.com. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Tama may retain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. How would you go about staying out of a divorce attorney's office? Find a great divorce attorney to listen to? Jim Sexton is an accomplished New York divorce attorney who has seen it all throughout his 20-plus year career focused on divorce law. What makes Jim unique is that he took his life experiences and work as a divorce attorney and created a book, How to Stay in Love, A Divorce Lawyer's Guide to Staying Together. Jim's experience has led him to believe that marriages and other committed relationships fail for two fundamental reasons. One, you don't know what you want. And two, you can't express what you want. This lack of communication with yourself and your partner is often the relationship killer. Throughout our discussion, Jim highlights actionable steps that you can take to help solidify your relationship, such as leaving your spouse or partner a little note of gratitude, a weekly win-fail walk, and a hit-send-now email. The basis for these actions is all focused on the need to keep checking in with yourself and your spouse or partner. I agree with Jim that it's better to stay in love, stoking existing love, than to fall out of love and try to find it again. This is a process that you control and the person you love controls. How great is that? Please enjoy my conversation with Jim Sexton. So, Jim Sexton, welcome to the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Thanks, Paul. It's great to be here. I appreciate you having me. I know that you get uh, bombarded, is probably the right word, with requests like this all the time, whether it's Access Hollywood, you know, local media in, in New York where you're based out of, podcast interviewers like myself. So, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to be on the show and talk about this topic of uh, marriage and divorce. And I, I'll lead off with this. You by far uh, are the most talked about guest that I've, that I've talked to between my wife, Teresa and I, when I told her I was reading your book like two, three weeks ago, yeah. I had to, I had to have a conversation with her about, yeah. Hey, I'm going to have Jim on. Yeah. I got to get this book read, but I don't want you to read too much into it. Into it. it, Paul. It's really funny that you say that because I, I had when when my book came out, my my, you know, it was um, sent to reviewers. You know, they always send it out maybe three, four months before it comes out. They send what's called ARCs, advanced reader copies, to reviewers and to influencers. You know, this is something that Macmillan, my publisher, did. And um, I got more emails from people saying, you know, I got this, and my spouse saw it on the table. And they said, what are you reading this thing? And and here's what I'll tell you, though, Paul, and it's an interesting segue into our conversation. I'm shocked by that. I I understand it. But the reality is, look, you and I as successful business people, um, if, if someone saw on your desk the seven habits of highly effective people, if someone saw, um, you know, uh, Thinking Fast or Slow, they, any of the myriad Tony Robbins books, Tim Ferriss's books, any of these people's books, they would look at it and they would go, wow, look at this. Look at, look at Jim. Look at Paul. Here they are. They're successful, but they just are always trying to sharpen the sword. You know, they're always really, they, they stay on their game. If someone saw a book on your table about how to be the best dad you could be or parenting triplets or something else, <laughs> They would go, look at this guy. He's so successful. He's so loving. He's so into his family. It seeds from every poor of him, but he still wants to learn. He still wants to up his game. Why is it when you see a book, the title of which is, you know, staying in love, staying married, staying out of, does anyone go, oh, shit, something's going on with the <laughs> You know, like what? What? And, and, and this is hilarious to me because my publisher said to me, you know, it's a rare thing these days, but your book, 
five to one, you sell five digital and audiobook copies to every paper or hardcover copy that you sell. And they said that's pretty common for books about sex, books that you wouldn't want someone to see you reading. You know, yeah. <laughs> and I really believe because people all the time say to me, oh, I've listened to your audiobook. I li- got you on Audible. I listen to you on Audible. I listen to you on Audible. And, and they always say, yeah, you know, I didn't like want to have the book around because I didn't want people to look at it and go like, oh, you having problems in your marriage or my spouse to see it and say. But meanwhile, you're reading a book, the purpose of which is to say, how do I keep my relationship strong? How do I keep it in the best place? How do I stop slippage? How do I stop little things from turning into big things? And, and I, I'm just amazed that we won't do that as a culture. I mean, and you know, as someone in finance, that like if people make good little decisions, the big decisions kind of take care of themselves. You That's know? Right. Yeah. And, and so it's the same exact thing in relationships. Well, I'm in the process of of uh, redesigning my office. So I'm going to have, um, I'm going to have to get a hard cover book of yours yeah, and have yeah. you sign it and send it to I'll me. I'll send you one. Yeah, so yeah, at least yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll have some shelves behind me. So like when I'm on these virtual meetings, yeah. they'll see that, that book and, and maybe get yeah. a couple good questions out of it. So, it's, you know what it really, we have to, and you know, this is a father and I, you know, I'm a father myself. My boys are older now. They're 24 and 22. One's, one's just graduating law school. Um, but the, the reality is, is, you know, you, the more humbly you approach it, you know, it's, it's really strange to say to people, you have to be humble and confident, but that's really the secret. Like that's the secret sauce is to be confident, but to be humble, to know that there's a lot you can learn, that there are people out there that, that have things to teach you. And that's really, my book was, was really just about learning from the mistakes of the people who come to my office every day. You know, my job is still a job I love. I am primarily a divorce lawyer. Um, do I do the TV, the podcast, or the book, all these things? I, I do. I enjoy it. I love it. It's really a labor of love. Unfortunately, as a divorce lawyer, you make more money in a month as a divorce lawyer than you do in three years as a writer of relationship books or a podcast guest or, right. or Steve Harvey segment haver. You know, you, you get scale, union scale for that, you know, whereas for this, you know, being a divorce lawyer, it's a profitable business. But it really is for me a labor of love. This, this stuff is fascinating to me as a father, as a human being, as a man. And so I'm always excited to talk to someone who's, who's and I see it in your work, that, that you know, that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to keep the marriage strong, be a good father. And so when I'm approached to have that conversation, that's always a conversation I want to have. Well, I, I appreciate it. We'll definitely, we're definitely going to uh, unpackage this a lot as, as our conversation goes through. So why don't we kind of back up and, and let our audience know if they don't already know who you are, sure. your background and how sure. you came into law and specifically divorce law. Yeah. Yeah. So how I got into divorce, you know, divorce lawyers, when you talk to them most of the time, and I say this in one of my books that they use the term, I ended up in divorce law. You know, you talk to a lawyer and say, how'd you end up in divorce lawyer? They say, well, I end up in divorce law. And they always tell you a story that they didn't mean to be there. You know, like it very rarely does someone say, oh, we ended up in Iceland. You know, it's like, no, we meant to go there. You know, when you ended up somewhere, it's because you took a wrong turn or you kind of didn't know what you were doing. So for me, I was in my undergraduate degree was in psychology. I went and got my master's degree uh, in um, persuasive speech and, and uh, propaganda studies at NYU. And I was on my way to a PhD. I was teaching at NYU. Um, but I, I really wasn't enjoying the academic life. I, I, I like the engagement. I was a debater in high school. I always loved argument, structured argument, um, logical argument, you know, applying reason to facts. And so um, I, I took the LSAT uh, uh, and I did very well. And I ended up going to law school at Fordham Law School. And from day one, I knew I wanted to be a divorce lawyer. It was really the only area of law that interested me because it was the intersection of all of my interests, you know, psychology, human development, um, you know, psychopathology, the challenges people have emotionally in their lives. Uh, and then also, you know, persuasive speech, being a courtroom lawyer, um, you know, there are lots of lawyers, they never were in a room with a client, they never set foot in a courtroom, they never get to make argument in front of a judge, cross-examine witnesses. So divorce law gave me the opportunity to do that. And for you know, 15, 16 years, I, I, I had a very, very successful uh, career as a divorce lawyer. I built a firm from, 
you know, a tiny little office with nothing of $5,000 that I borrowed from friends and built it into a firm. We have two offices, uh, seven attorneys working for me, um, you know, a large staff, and, and uh, we've been very successful. And now I tend to represent more high net worth clients, um, more contentious, challenging cases. Um, I have a staff that does all kinds of other cases as well, uh, all divorce and family law cases. That's all we handle. Um, but, but we really, you know, I try to focus my practice on precision and on trial work and difficult cases. But about, I don't know, 2016 or so, um, I just felt like I'd been using the same muscles over and over again, and I wanted to do something different. And I listened to a podcast uh, where Stephen King, the author, was being interviewed. And I was like, when I go on vacation, I always bring a couple of Stephen King books, a couple of Jack Reacher novels. And I, you know, that's what I do. I'll sit on the beach and read, you know. And I, um, I, Stephen King, they said, you know, how are you such a prolific writer? The guy's written like 50 something books, puts out like one a year. And he said, you know, if you write a page a day in a year, you have a book. And I took that to heart and I thought, you know, I could write a page a day. Like, I, I don't know if I could write a book, but I know I could write a page a day. And so I started writing every morning as part of my sort of morning. I would, you know, do my little page and sometimes it would like that. And sometimes it would take, it was a grind. Sometimes I just bang out 10 pages before I even realized it. Um, but I tried every day to write. And the next thing I knew, I had a book. And, and then the book came out and it did really, really well. It was well-reviewed by the New York Times. It segued into a lot of television appearances, some publicizing the book and then some, you know, bouncing off of other appearances where I'd been a successful guest. I ended up with a, a, a regular uh, segment on Steve Harvey's TV show for two seasons, 13 episodes. I did Rachel Ray. I did a lot of the bigger things. And now I'm a regular commentator for Excess Hollywood. And, and um, you know, I have a lot of other opportunities, but I, my day job of being a divorce lawyer is a busy one. And I do try now that my sons are older to have a little bit of a work-life balance. I, those accumulation years <laughs> that you're in when you have little ones, as you know, um, and that feeling of, oh my God, like these people are depending on me. Um, once they're sort of self-sufficient, you kind of go, okay, I, I don't have to feel that anymore. So I'm, I'm trying to find that balance. And, and so I, I don't do as many things as I probably could, but fundamentally I'm, I'm still, you know, a divorce lawyer, uh, working in New York city and, and the outside areas. I'm, I'm in my Rockland County office right now while we're recording this. And, um, I, I, you know, continue to write, um, I, I write for a couple different magazines. I've done pieces in, in a bunch of different magazines. That's all on my website. You can find links to stuff like that, but, um, but that's my background. And I really, from a personal place, um, I was uh, divorced when my kids were five and seven. Um, I, I'm very blessed. I have a, an excellent relationship with my ex-wife. We're, we're close friends to this day. She's remarried to a wonderful guy who I get along great with. Um, our sons are older now, so we don't have as much occasion to talk to each other as we did when they were little and we were co-parenting as divorced parents. But, um, you know, I, I had the experience of being married and not doing it right. And I had the experience of uh, being a good ex-husband. I'm a better ex-husband than I was husband. You know, the skill set for an ex-husband and the skill set for a husband are different. They're, yeah, uh, they, they change. <laughs> yeah, they do. But, but, but they're, they both are a defined role and they're both an important role. And, and so, you know, knowing what you're good at and what you, you know, need to be better at if you wanted to be better at it is important. So, um, yeah, so I wrote the book really just as a... a caution to people as to here's what I see in my office. And I tried to write it not just from my speculative point of view, because who am I? Um, it really was just about, because we live in a, a time where people can argue theories endlessly, but you can't argue facts, like facts are facts. And so I would look at very clearly what was in my office, what were, what were people really fighting about? What were they really having issues in their marriage with? And, and look at the facts on the ground. And that gave me the ability to kind of report that to people. And that's what the book, I really wanted it to be. And I think it ultimately was, was less of my opinion and more of my observation from a very unique seat. And that's, I think that's where I, I was going to go next is, I'm not exactly sure how I found your work, but I'm glad I did because how, how I saw you is that you have this front row seat yeah. to the intimate details of a relationship, whether it's husband, wife, partners, whatever it may be. And to me, that's, that's very fascinating and interesting because of the, the family office that, that I've built where 
pretty much my niche, everything that the families I work with, it's all centered on that one thing, families. Whether you have multiples, twins, triplets like I do, or plus one, or you you just have a couple kids, it doesn't matter. The core is that that family. And at that core, that inner core, if you will, is that relationship between the you know partners or husband and wife. And that's where I see a lot of um, differences, if you will. And yeah. they could be good or bad. They're just, they're, they're differences. You know, one person's a saver and one person's a spender. And how does, how do they marry their not only relationship personally, but their financial relationship as well? Right. And how do they, how do they, the thing that, that was fascinating to me is, and how do they communicate that? with themselves and with each other, right? Because I, I think the most dangerous lies I've learned are the lies we tell ourselves, you know, not necessarily the lies we tell other people, you know, like we tell ourselves, oh yeah, I'm, I'm going to put money away for college. You know, at some point I'm going to do that or no, no, I'll, I'll, you know, next year I'll definitely do that. Like these are, these are things we're telling ourselves. We're not lying deliberately to the people around us necessarily relying to ourselves. And so if we have a hard enough time navigating ourselves in an honest, effective way, how do we do that with another person, right? And how do we do it with, because look, let's be candid. You, you know, probably even better than me. I mean, certainly having triplets, like I, I don't even know how that works. I only have two hands. So if I, I had two years between my boys and that was, that was, I needed that time to like, oh my God, like, okay, this one's fine. He's on the couch. This one now I can tend to. If you got three, I, you really. There's, got there's definitely man-to-man versus zone defense. And so yeah, we were zone be, defense right. from you the beginning. You got to have a whole playbook. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you got to have, I got to tell you, you and your wife must be bonded like war buddies. I mean, you must, you've been through something together. But what I will say is you, you, what you learn, I think, very quickly doing what I do is that, that the people who end up in my office are people who let the many, many things in life that are antagonistic to the bond between a husband and a wife or between partners, right? Um, Because again, people are unmarried and have children together. People, same-sex couples have children together. So when I say husband and wife, I I know I'm being generic, but it's just sort of the majority. So I'm using that as a reference. I don't want to be accused of of ever trying to be exclusionary in my language. But the reality is, is that, 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 you know, the people who have children together, co-parents, okay? They, there's so much attacking that relationship. Your children want some of your time. Your career wants some of your time. You know, your friendships want some of your time. You want some of your time for yourself. I mean, it's all really about that balance, that work-life balance. And where do we fit our partner in? Do we do what we often do with other things in our life, which is wait till there's a problem and then deal with it? Because we know, like my sister's a dentist, and she said to me, by the time you got a toothache, it's too late. Like, you got a toothache, I can't really help you. I can fill it, I can do that, but it's done. It's done. If it hurts, it's done. If you'd seen me before, I could have prevented you from getting that toothache. So that's what this book was about. It was about saying, look, we, we get married. You know, there, there's 7.3 billion people in the world. And we look at one of them and we go, yep, that one. That one. I'm going to tie myself to that one. And we do that. I, I don't think anyone ever does it going, yeah, we'll give this a shot. And, you know, if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. Most people approach marriage with a, with a more serious bent than that. I, I think most people give more thought to the cake than they do to what are our spending styles? What are our saving styles? Um, because that's not as sexy of a conversation. You can't post it on your Instagram. You know, you can post pictures of the, of the cake on the Instagram. You can't post pictures about you having a conversation about your, your positions on discretionary savings, you know. But I think at the end of the day, the things that, that we live in, the details of living as a couple, building a family, they're, they're very, very um, common problems And I think they have solutions, but the solutions are like proactive solutions. And that's what, again, my work is about. My work is about preventative maintenance. It's about little things you can do on a day-to-day basis to keep the wheels on. Because once the wheels are off, and that's why the title of the book was, if you're in my office, it's already too late. If you're here, you've taken an incredibly wrong turn. 
If the thought of divorcing your spouse is anything other than a fleeting thought that you have when your spouse does something really boneheaded, if you're in a lawyer's office talking about a divorce, you're already really far down that road. I'm not saying you can't come back, but that's a, that's a tough place to come back from. It's a whole lot easier to maintain a healthy weight than to gain 400 pounds and try to lose 400 pounds. That's a lot, lot harder. So my book is really just about maintaining that connection that you had when you said, this is the person I want to sign on. Yeah. It, and there's, there's a lot to unpack there, but I, I think the first comment I would, I would make is, is just like you can have positive compounding returns, you can have negative compounding returns as well. And I think that was one of the highlights I took away from your, your work as well in your book is that those little things every day, if you let them go, they will compound and then people end up so far gone that they end up in your office. And that was one of my questions. And, and I'll, I'll to, to ask is how many people get to your office and, and are able to pull it back? And to give you a good example, um, <laughs> Teresa's not going to be happy with me sharing this because she, she said, <laughs> please, Paul, do not share too many personal right, things right, about right, our right. marriage on this conversation yeah. with, with Jim this morning. But, and, and people, our close friends know this, you know, when we, I think we had been married about two years or so. And, um, you know, we were planning on having kids and guess what? I changed my mind. You know, she wanted kids. I went in thinking I did. And then I said, no, I don't think this is for me. And we were, we had, we had gone through the dissolution process. We had the paperwork drawn. All it needed were our signatures and we were done. And for some, and I still can't go back to that point. I can gem and tell you exactly what happened that like made us rip it up, but, but we did. And we're like, okay, we're just going to have one. We're going to go for one kid (laughs) and then triplets plus one, you know, 11 years later. You know how to make God laugh. Tell him your plans. You yeah, know? I mean, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, but but look, you know what? Look, I think it's wonderful that you share that. And I think that it's, you know, we would all be a whole lot better off and a whole lot healthier if we, if we shared with each other candidly about the struggles that people have in their relationships and navigating a marriage and navigating a partnership of that kind. Because, I, you know, especially in the age of social media, we're, we're just, we're looking at everybody else's greatest hits and we're living our gag reel. And, and we just feel like, you know, like when are we looking at our phones? We're looking at them when we're tired, when we're bored, when we're lonely, when we're on the toilet, whatever. And, and not the peak moments of our life. And what are we looking at? We're looking at everybody else's amazing moments because nobody posts the bad pictures. They post right. the pictures. Nobody posts the pictures of vacation where everybody's sunburned. They have everybody on the beach happy and smiling. So the truth is we, we compare ourselves to this false thing. And, and when people like you and your wife, you know, share, you know, that, yeah, look, we, we had this challenge. And when you as a man say, you know what? Yeah, I didn't know. I didn't know what I wanted. I thought maybe I didn't want this. And, and you know what, man, who would, who is anybody ever woken up and said, you know, I've had enough restful sleep. I've had enough, like being able to have sex with my spouse whenever I want, wherever I want. And I, what am I going to do with all this money? I let's. I, we should have a bunch of kids. Like it's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a. I mean, you know, to to love. I have a friend who just got a dog, and they said to me, um, you know, and I have dogs, and I, I love my dogs, and I've loved dogs in my life, and lost dogs in my life, and and because you know, eventually they age and they pass away. And I said to my friend, said, you know, you think I'm crazy for getting a dog? And I said, I think loving anything is insane because to love anything is to accept the inevitability of losing it, you know, to love anything, to love like you, your marriage will end. It will end in death or divorce, but it will end. All marriages end. They all end in either death or divorce. You know, you're, 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 we all have to accept that. And so to me, having more honest conversations about that your love is loaned. It's not permanently gifted to your spouse. And, and what are we doing to honor that, that, that your spouse is still loaning that to you? Because I, I love what you said about compounding and negative compounding, but also positive compounding. I mean, the reality is these little things that we could do on a day-to-day basis to just remind our spouse that we care about them, that we're paying attention, that we still see that they're there. You know, 
when you go to a party and you're sitting around with a bunch of couples and there's like that one couple that you can kind of tell they either got in a fight or they don't like each other. They, like, it was a weird car ride there or something. If you look at that couple and you go, so how did you guys meet? Tell us, tell us about how you guys met. Every, their whole demeanor softens. changes. It changes because yeah. you go back for a moment to that <clears> place where, where they, this person was a person they were trying to close, you know, they were trying to close <laughs> the deal. And I really still think that, that if, if we honor that and we realize, as you did, the, how fragile our relationship can be, and we honor it with these little moments, these little habits. I mean, I, the test I always say to men, and, and it's, it's not meant to be a sexist test, so, but, it, but I happen to talk to a lot of men. And what I say to them is I say, do me a favor, for the next two weeks, every morning, leave your wife a note. Just leave her a little note, just a little note on the kitchen counter, whatever it is, leave her a little note just saying, I had so much fun watching Ozark with you last night, or, you know, dinner was so great last night. It was so nice to spend a little time with you. I, I, I have the prettiest girl in the world and I'm so lucky. Love, whatever. You know, and that's it. Like something little simple. Just two sentences, three sentences. Do it for two weeks. Tell me it's not the best investment you've ever made. Because I, the guys I've told to do that, they do it. They come to me and they'll call me and go, holy cow, like it was that easy. And I go, yeah, it was that easy. They're like the first two days, she was like, what's going on? What did you do? What are yeah. you up to? You know, and if you say, you know, no, I just want to, you know, I, I, I was listening to something or I was reading something and it made me think that, you know, I should always take the time to let you know how special you are to me. But these guys all said to me that two weeks later, they're like, I'm having more sex. She's happier. She's like, because the truth is, is it doesn't take much. It doesn't take much. If every day your wife paid you some compliment, told you how handsome you are, Whatever it was, you know, did, did something, gave you a kiss, whatever it might be, did something that made you feel valued, loved, sexy, handsome, smart, whatever it might be, good dad, whatever it might be. You, trust me, that bond is, is it, it becomes an unbreakable one, but it, but it requires that we have the mindfulness that that's something we have to do. And when, in going through the book, the, the one thing that we've touched on that really stood out to me that you emphasized, I think, as a, as a common theme throughout is this, you know, communication. Yeah. And you, you know, I have, I've got like six pages of notes in front of me. So oh. I, had to, I had to like skinny this down and do some highlighting. But one of the things you said is I've, I've learned over and over that marriage, marriages and other committed relationships fail for two fundamental reasons. One, you don't know what you want. And two, you can't express what you want. Yeah. 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 That's still, I think if you were to distill the, the thesis of my book to, to two things, it'd be that. Like it really is that we don't know what we want and we don't know how to express what we want. And, and, and so the book is primarily first about figuring out what it is in an honest way that's important to you in your relationship, right? In your relationship with yourself, your relationship with your partner what it is that your partner loves about you, you know, like, because very often too, we, we don't just love our partner. We love who we are when we're with our partner, when we're all at our best, right? Like when you think back on when you fell in love with your wife, like it, it's not just her then that you loved. It's also who you were when you were with her, how you felt, who, how you related to the world, you know, that feeling, right? And, and so, that's a huge piece. And then the other piece is, you know, how do we communicate that to our partners? Because we never really have a conversation about how to have a conversation. Like we, we never, we learn how to fight with our spouse while we're in a fight, which is a terrible time. to learn. <laughs> yeah, that's not good. <laughs> the worst time. If I said to you, I'm going to teach you how to box and you're going to learn while boxing Floyd Mayweather. Like, no, that, that's a terrible time to learn. You should go learn how to box, then box some simple people, then go box this person if you want to. But don't go in and learn how to box while boxing. Like, you're just going to get hit a lot of times. So, you know, how many people, when they're getting married, you know, or, or when they're newly married, have a conversation when they're getting along with their spouse and say, listen, there's going to come a time we're going to disagree on something. I'm going to say something stupid, probably. I'm going to do something stupid, probably. I, I'm, I'm prone to doing that. And so when we do, and we get in a fight, 
What does that look like for you? Are you the person like, we got to hash this out before we go to bed? I can't go to get angry. I'm not going to be able to think clearly until we work it out. Are you somebody that like, give me a minute, give me some space. Let me digest this. Let me calm down. And then we can talk like what, what's better. Like what, what's better for you. Here's how I am. I, I need a minute. I need to kind of regroup, calm down, take a breath. And then I can come back and have the conversation because otherwise you know, you're, you're, you could be having really combative communication styles, like non-complementary, you know, communication styles, and that's going to impede you. And it's the same kind of a thing. Like having those discussions about how to have the discussion is a lot of what I try to talk about in my work, which is how do we, how do we check in as a couple? And, and I'm sure, you know, uh, hit send now, which is one of the chapters in the book <laughs> that's very popular. Uh, just, I'm, I'm laughing, Jim, because when I, that was like the first thing I did, like an action item I took away from, from yeah. reading the book is that I put together an email to Teresa that I haven't sent to her yet about well, something that's been on my mind yeah. and I need to finish it and get it to her this week. Good. Good. No, but here's what I'll tell you, Paul, what you're doing right already <clears throat> is you're being thoughtful about writing that email which is wonderful because to me, like hit send now is a solution to the two things we just pointed out as problems. I don't know what I want. And I don't know how to express it. So, so the idea of hit send now for those who haven't read the book is, is basically that um, rather than having a conversation, which can be confrontational, right? Like if I call you up and I say, Paul, I got to talk to you about something. I am setting, like I've decided we're going to talk about this thing that I want to talk about, whether you want to talk about it or not. And the only alternative to that is to call you and say, I have something important I want to talk to you about is now a good time, which really puts a person in a terrible position. Right. Well, not really, but if it's important, I I guess we got to do it, you know? So, and then you're reacting to it in real time as I'm talking to you. So you're automatically defensive. You haven't really formulated or thought about what what you're going to say in response because you didn't even know we were going to have this conversation. So there's a lot wrong with that model of communication. So one of the things I've said that I I like about email is you can thoughtfully compose an email and then you send it. And what I said is you should talk to your spouse before you implement this technique and say, look, I would like us to be able to send each other emails where we talk about things that might be on our mind in a non-confrontational way. And we're going to know that it's one of these emails because we're going to make the subject heading hit send now. And, and the reason I used hit send now is I said that there's like a, you know, when you send an email, like you hit send and now you can't unsend it. It's like a scary feeling. <laughs> yeah. like you're like, oh, all right, there it is. You know, like you ever quit a job or you fired, you know, something, something you did something big via email, hit a trade execution, you know, you go like, oh God, okay, I did it. You know, so it, it really, to me, it was that same feeling of like, okay, I'm going to hit send now and I'm just putting this out there. Whether it's good, bad, whether it was wrong that I feel this way, you feel how you feel. And I said, it, it doesn't have to be big things. It could be these little things because no single raindrop's responsible for the flood. But the flood's made up of all these little raindrops. So what I said is let's squash it before it gets big. Because anyone who's married knows you have that like morning where you're sitting there talking about like the best way to cook bacon. And, you know, you're like, oh, I like it a little crispy. And she's like, oh, well, I think it should be this. And 10 minutes later, it's like, I never liked your mother. You know, <laughs> what? Like, where did that come? How long have you been carrying that around for? So to me, what is that? Except you've been carrying around all this stuff. Yeah. And then the bacon blows it up or the, the kid bumping their toe blows it up, you know? So what you do with Hit Send Now is, you know, the subject headings Hit Send Now. And you send, hey, listen, the other night when we had our friends over and you were talking about my sister, you kind of made a comment and it just like rubbed me the wrong way. It felt like you were insulting my sister and I know you love her. So I just kind of didn't know. Is there like something we need to talk about with my sister? Like, or were you just in a bad mood? That's okay too. But I just want to, it just sat weird with me and I don't want to carry around weird feelings about things you said. And that gives this person a chance to read it, digest it, not be defensive and write back and say, or talk to you later and say, you know, no, I didn't mean to, and I'm sorry. Or, oh, you know, look, you're, like your sister's a little on my nerves these days because of X, Y, and Z. You know, couples can implement this as a, as a written technique. I had one couple who wrote to me that they said they, they started doing a weekly walk and talk where they just once a week, they just go for a short walk and they do a win and a fail. So they're like, how did I win in the marriage this week? How did I fail the marriage this week? And like, they don't have to be big things, but like, what's, what's a fail? What's something I did wrong this week? You know, 
or what's something your partner did wrong this week? And then end on the win. You know, well, what was the win? Oh, well, you did this and that was so lovely, or I really appreciated that you did this. And, and it, it invites a dialogue about where are we? We're checking in, you know, we're checking in on these things because it's important, you know, measure what matters, like pay attention to those little disconnections before they become big disconnections. And I think a good tie in, and I had jotted this, this note down a few minutes ago it, to, to remind me to come back to it is that one of the things that I've really focused on over the last, you know, three, four years of my practice is this concept of life transitions. And I don't think that people realize like how many life transitions they go through, whether it's a death of a loved one, getting married, babies, careers, because you know, yeah. changing jobs often. But one of the things that you highlight in the book as well, and you 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 hit on this at, at some point during our conversation about the when we marry the the person that we marry, you know, we Teresa and I have been married 15 years, is that person is gone. Like the person that I was back then is gone. The person yeah. that Teresa back then was gone. Like we've changed and you know, we've gone through this transition. And so how, how do you adapt and change with your partner as you change, as your life change, as your, you know, kids, you know, if you have them grow up and and change, because that's, that's one thing I worry about with some of my families is, and unfortunately I'm going through this now where I have families that, you know, are going through challenges, whether they're getting divorced or, or, or not, I know there's, there's issues there. And that, that worries me because like, did I not do enough? Did I not, yeah. you know, uh, see this earlier, bring things up, but I am aware of numbers. And I know that when, when married people hit age 50 or so, and their kids are gone, that divorce rate spikes. Spikes, Yeah, it spikes. Yeah. And it spikes because Kids can be a very pleasant distraction. You know, they can be a focus. I mean, children are a tremendous amount of resources and focus. I think the idea of like a midlife crisis for people, I think it largely comes from this idea that there's this chapter where you're very focused on your offspring and you're very focused on navigating them safely to adulthood. And then suddenly um, through that process, that 20 some year process, let's call it, you, of course, become a different person. You know, you can't walk through the same stream twice. I mean, the reality is, is we're constantly changing. We're not the person we were yesterday. But, but, but the, the process of parenting from birth to quasi-adulthood is, for the parent is incredibly transformational. It's, it's your 30s and 40s, perhaps. It's, it's, these are huge years, huge years for you professionally, personally, interpersonally. So the reality is... That, that, you know, if you don't keep checking in with who you are and who your partner is, then, yeah, you could turn around and you have no idea who this person next to you is because you've been so focused on the kids and you've been so focused. Like the things that make us a great parent, being so attentive to our children and being so caught up in their needs, very often can be fatal to a marriage because, we have a battery, just like our phone has a battery, you know, and it's got, it's charged at a hundred at the beginning of the day. And we got this many minutes. We got this much time. We're going to spend a third of our life asleep. So what do we do with the other two thirds? We got that battery. And if we give 70, you know, 25% of it to work, 50% of it to work, 25% of it to the kids, 10% of it to the gym, you know, to, okay, what do you got left? You got 5%? You're going to give to your spouse? So you got to figure out, you got to really like, this is not by default. It's got to be by design because if you do it by default, you, you and I both know, how do you not see a friend for two years? You, you don't see them by just going, we got to catch up one of these days when we have some free time. When's the last time you had some, fr- I haven't been bored since Bill Clinton was in office. I don't know what <laughs> bored looks like. Like I always have something. So I have, I have to make time. I have to make time for the gym. I have to make time for seeing my sons. I have to make time for my relationship. I have to make time for the things that are important to me because otherwise time will pass, you know? And, and so I, I totally, from where you're sitting, you're very much like me in the sense that we both see behind the curtain of people's finances, right? They, they yes. might lie to the world. They might put the Maserati in the driveway. You know, but, but you and I both know the Maserati in the driveway, you can have white teeth and rotting gums. 
You know, I know a lot of people come in and they go, oh, my ex has so much money. He's got a Maserati. He's got a Porsche. You know, I go, right. Did he lease it? Because if he leased it, he's got a liability. He doesn't have an asset. You know, like, oh, he's got this big house. He's got a big house with a huge mortgage. mortgage on. Yeah. The bank has a beautiful house and he has an incredible amount of interest he's paying on a monthly basis. So the reality is, is you and I see a very naked you know, thing. We see something that, that, that we're very privileged. I'm, I'm very humble by the things people share with me. I mean, I likewise, I am as well. It's a yeah, very, and, and yes. that seeds in, in, in you. It's obvious that you take very seriously. The people are saying to you, here's my family's finances. Help me, help me. These kids that are two years old, you know, and, and, and when you have them at the same time now, you have multiples. How do I get hit? I don't have any room to breathe. I'm going to get hit with all these colleges at once. I'm going to get hit with all this college tuition at once. I'm going to get hit with all this private school tuition all at once. I'm going to get hit with a learner's permit and a car that they're all going to want all at once. So they, they, they give you that and they go help me with this. And, and the challenge of it is, is you have to look at things that, you know, you have to tell them, listen, th- this is not good. You're not doing this right. You got to change the way you're doing this. And, and this is a drain. This isn't helping, you know, and, then they have to translate that into a difficult conversation with their partner, you know, saying, listen, we can't be spending this much on that or we can't be doing this much. It's the same thing with my book. I think one of the reasons people are a little scared about my book is what questions am I going to have to ask myself if I read this book? You know? Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, I, I, I feel, and I've explained this before, this, this really sense of empathy that I feel for people when they first pick up the phone and call me or they first come into my office, whether it's in person or virtual, is that I know for a fact that family, partner, spouse, whatever, had to go through a landmine of feelings just to be able to get to me because the, the decision to talk openly or potentially openly about all their personal finances and with me and how I run my practice is that it's very kind of, it's, it's very different. Like I let people know up front that this is just not a financial transaction. Like I'm going to be front and center in your lives, like not on a personal basis and on a financial basis. And not everybody can handle that. Like some people just want that finance part. Well, that's not how I, I work. And that's not how I see the best results of, of, of having a relationship like that. So but how can it not be though? Because the, the truth is, is, is in both of our professions, there's a tremendous amount of trust that's required. And there are a tremendous number of, of bad actors in the world. There are people, you know, for, for every one of, of you, there's a Bernie Madoff, you know, and for every one of me, there's the divorce lawyer who's just predatory and amps up conflict and, and really creates discord that, that's going to last forever. It's going to last through these people when they have grandchildren together someday. And so I, and that's what I, I mean when I say, I think you and I both approach it humbly, which yes. is, look, you're, you're letting me in and I appreciate that. It's the only way you or I can do our job the right way is if someone lets us in, is honest with us, because in being honest with us, we're forcing them to be honest with themselves. So, yeah, exactly. you know, and, and that's a really healthy, good thing, because again, someone once said to me, the only really important question that you should be trying to answer in therapy is what is it I'm unwilling to feel? What is it I don't want to feel? Because really addiction, whether it's drugs, alcohol, pornography, sex, smoking, anything. Addiction is something we do to get away from what we would have been feeling if we hadn't done that thing. Like it's we're sitting there and we're like, oh, I'm having this. I don't like how I'm feeling right now. I'm going to pick up my phone or I'm going to call this person or I'm going to have a drink or I'm going to smoke a joint. And, and the truth is, is what, what is it you're feeling that's making you so uncomfortable? And, and, and that's, that's what's required, I think is to ask yourself that question, have that kind of fearless inventory of what's going on in your own heart. What is it you really want out of your marriage? How, how, what is it you want to feel when you're with your wife? What does your wife want to feel when she's with you? And you'd be surprised. I, I, I don't think we always know the answer. I think what we think, it's very funny to me. One, one of the funniest conversations I ever had, I was talking to two women who were single women. And they were talking about a guy. And I just, it was like one of those conversations that 
I'm sitting across the table, but they kind of forgot I was there. So I felt like I was like in the girls locker room, like I was hearing <laughs> something that I, I probably shouldn't get to hear. And they were talking about this guy. They were describing this guy that one of them was kind of interested in. And she was like, yeah, you know, he's like, you know, he dresses really nice. He dresses like very kind of casual, but like he has like a, you know, like I think he's, he's Catholic or whatever. He has like a, you can see like that little bump, like in the t-shirt where, where like a crucifix sort of thing is. And mm-hmm. everyone was like, oh yeah, I love that. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> like, I'm here doing crunches like all day. Like that's something that you guys like. Like who, nobody let us know that. Like weird little things that you find attractive about us is totally beyond me. You know, and, and we think we know what our spouse wants from us. We think we know what our spouse needs from us. But the truth is, is your spouse may not even know what your spouse wants from you. So if, if, if we can, Make that conversation, you know, because really, ultimately, you and I, our professions very much intersect. Mm-hmm. When we say to people, you just got to look at this thing that you might not want to look at, and you got to clean it up a little bit, and then it'll be easy. And we're just going to do what we got to do. We're just going to, like, keep it on track. And then every once in a while, a bomb's going to explode, and we're like, okay, all right, now this happened. We had this unexpected repair, so we got to make some changes to our financial structure. Or, okay, we got in a fight. So now we're going to have to, you know, we got to fix that argument that we had, you know, whether it's my profession. At the end of the day, like, it's really about look at this thing you've been avoiding looking at, look at it honestly, look at it with someone's guidance, right? Whether it's in your case, the professional advice of someone who's helping them hands on, or, you know, in my case, read the book, come up, look at those techniques, have those conversations, do some tinkering, put some plans in place. And then just maintain, 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 and know that when the waves hit that were not expected, you got a strong foundation. Exactly. So, Jim, I could I could keep you here all day. I, I like like I said, I had like six, seven pages of notes. I think I got through one of them. But I know I don't. I only have you for a finite period of time. So I'm going to get to my last uh, question yeah. that I ask all my guests, especially parents, is. What is the best thing about being a parent? You've got two boys, 24 and 22, I think. So what is the best thing about being a parent? Gosh, you know, it's a great question. And and I love to hear people's answers to it. Um, What I would say mine is, uh, mine's going to seem narcissistic, but, but it fits in with my book. I mean, I think my, my sons and parenting my sons really held up a mirror to me. It, it really showed me the things I needed to work on as a person for myself. Um, I, I wanted so much for them to be good men that I had to really think hard about what it means to be a good man. And in doing that, in trying to think about what behaviors I wanted to model to them, I had to think about what makes a good man? And that forced me to sort of go, okay, wait, do I live up to that standard? Am I that way? And, and if I don't, will my words even mean anything to my kids? Because they're seeing what I'm doing. And what I do speak so loudly, they're not going to hear what I say. you know. And so I love about parenting what it did to me, how it improved me. But, but in addition to that, to take it off of me, I mean, I, you know, parenting for me, your heart is just walking around. And, and that's the most terrifying and wonderful thing in the world. And I will say very quickly a, a great little story because we're at different chapters, you and I, of our parenting journey. So my son Noah is my oldest. He's 24. He's going to be a district attorney in the Bronx. He's a law school graduate now. And he's, he's just an amazing young man. Both my sons are amazing in their own ways. And, uh, and when he was little... We used to go to the movies a lot. You know, sometimes it's like you want to give mom a break and you go, okay, let's, I'm going to take him to see whatever animated thing is up there. <laughs> yep. you know? and so I said, I would often just fall asleep. Like I would just sit there, I put my hand on his hand and I would <laughs> fall asleep, you know? And we'd watch whatever the animated talking dog was on the screen. And the movie ends and the lights come on and everybody does like a mad dash to get to the door, you know? And so he was a little boy. And, uh, you know, the lights would come on and I'd hold his hand and I'd, you know, hold him close to me and walk him, you know, walk him through the exit, you know, so we, we'd go out and, you know, get to our car. So my son is about two years ago. So he's 22 years old. My son is six foot five. Um, he's much more muscular even than me, uh, you know, but he's a big dude, uh, you know, handsome, handsome young guy. And uh, we went to the movies together. 
and we're watching this movie and I forget what we saw and the movie finishes and the lights come up and everybody goes to stand up and my hand goes out <laughs> to, to take it. And it was like just something in my reptile brain that yeah. was like, oh, the lights are up. You don't want nowhere to get lost. And it, it, it was such a sweet moment because I thought to myself, he'll always be that. He'll always be. He could be six foot five. He drove us there. Like he drove <laughs> us there. He has a cell phone. There's no way I could lose him. He's six five. You see him over everybody. But, the, but, but there's something in my brain, in my heart was like, oh, no, he's always this little boy. And he always sort of needs my protection. And he's sort of, you know, and I, I sort of, you know, I stopped myself. I didn't go to grab his hand. But I just sort of thought to myself, like, oh, like, what a lovely thing to have this part of my heart that's always so soft, even for this man, you know, this, this incredibly autonomous, smart, great, funny man, you know. So um, you're, you'll see. You'll see. There'll always be. There's something in the eyes that never changes. And they're always still that little that little one, you know, and, and, and it doesn't matter how old they are. It's, it's, it's always wonderful. Well, that is, I love asking the question because over almost 60 some different episodes of, of yeah. doing the show, the yeah. responses are just, are always different and always amazing. And yours is no different. So Jim, I can't thank you for being on the emotional oh, balance pleasure. sheet enough. Um, you know, I, I, I could, I could have you on a regular basis. I'll so. be happy to come back. Happy to come back anytime. It's always a lot of fun. I, I love the show. I, I think your format is great. I think your, your whole concept is great. And uh, I, I really do think you're doing good work. I, I think it's really you know, you're looking at, at with, with the eye of someone with expertise in finance, looking at the bigger picture, you know, of, of work-life balance, family, children, spouse. I, I think this is such, this is the most important topic, and it really is the mechanism to keeping people out of my office. So I, I love your work. I'm happy to support it. Thanks, Jim. Well, on, on that note, I'll look forward to many more conversations with, with us to come. So thank For you. Sure. For sure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Please visit TamaCapital.com to subscribe to this podcast or to connect with certified financial planner and registered investment advisor, Paul Fenner of Tama Capital. And please join us again next time on the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Mm-hmm.